You know, in referring to ancient words, I'm just reminded that, um, that we are the inheritors of something that cost a lot of people a lot to hand it to us. There's a, a wonderful line in a hymn that says, we bear the torch that flaming fell from the hands of those who gave their lives proclaiming that Jesus died and rose. And unfortunately in our day, very often Christianity is treated first of all as a means to satisfy consumer desires and secondly as something that was invented day before yesterday. And it is neither of those things. Matthew chapter 5, beginning in verse 17. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly, I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass away from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. And then from the 10th chapter of the Gospel of Luke, verses 25 through 28. And behold, a lawyer stood up. That's always a bad start right there when a lawyer stands up. Behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And he said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. Do this and you will live. Lord, if we could do that, there wouldn't be any need of a Savior. For to love you with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and our neighbor as ourselves, fulfills the whole law. And we have not fulfilled the whole law. We've not even come close. And so, unless we are in Christ Jesus, we stand condemned. Make your book live this morning, O Lord, and speak to your people of eternal things. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, two weeks ago, we were introduced to the, the law of God as a concept, and uh, I do a lot of review here because uh, according to all the research, you guys forget about 90% of what I've said by the time you're in the parking lot, and by Wednesday, you've forgotten like 99% of what I said. So um, I'm, I'm a big one for review if we're trying to keep something impressed in our hearts. And so we were introduced to the law of God, and we first of all learned that there were three categories of law in our Old Testaments. That is the ceremonial law, which was the way that the Jews lived in a distinct way and worshipped in a distinct way. There's the moral law, and then there's the civil law. 
And we noted that only one of those three is still binding upon the Christian. That is the moral law. Next, we noted that the moral law has three functions. For the unbeliever, the moral law is there to condemn him. It's there to show him his sin and his need for a savior. It's a mirror to convince him of his need and hopefully cause him to flee to the throne of grace for mercy and pardon in Christ Jesus. The moral law also, secondly, serves as the basic standard upon which any nation should write its own laws since it is the standard of justice. And lastly, the moral law is the standard for Christian behavior precisely because it is an expression of God's character. The moral law and obedience to the moral law is how Jesus walked while he was in the world and to and to call him upright and, and blameless is to say that he kept the moral law entirely. And so we who are the followers of Christ are to walk as he walked. And that's what it says in 1 John 2, 6. Whoever says he abides in him or lives in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. So last week we spoke about the law and its relationship to the covenant of works and the covenant of grace. And we noted that there are two phrases in 1 Corinthians 15, 21, and 22, which give us a, a map, a grid for understanding all of humanity in Christ or in Adam. We are all born in Adam, and as in Adam, all die. Adam was the federal head of all of humanity, and Adam entered into a covenant with God whereby he was obligated to perfect personal obedience to the commandments of God. And this was required of him upon punishment of death. And he failed. And because he was our federal head, the covenant of works that God made with Adam was also made with all of his offspring in him. And this, in the scriptural terminology, we were all present in Adam's loins when this agreement was made. And so we are bound to it as well. Now, you may be asking yourself, okay, the Ten Commandments are a brief uh, exhibition of the moral law of God, right? Right, that's correct. And the terms of the covenant of works which God made with Adam were to guard the garden and to work it, to be fruitful and multiply, and to not eat of the tree. That's correct. So you may be asking yourself, and somebody actually did ask me this week, why did you start with Adam and not Moses? Why did you start with the Garden of Eden and the fall and not the giving of the law at Mount Sinai? In other words, what's the relationship between eating from that forbidden tree and breaking the Ten Commandments? I can see how breaking the Ten Commandments was, is bad, and I can see how eating from the tree is bad, but how are both of those things violations of the same covenant? They seem like totally different things, totally unrelated things. Well, let me demonstrate to you that Adam and Eve violated the true inner substance of each of the commandments in the act of eating the fruit, okay? And this will be a quiz for you. We can do this. All right, what's the first commandment? Well, it sounds like you're speaking in tongues here. What's that? You shall have no other gods before me, right? In other words, God is God and the only God. Well, let me tell you, your God is that which is most important to you. 
right? Luther said that, and that's exactly right. Whatever is most important to you, that's what you worship, that's what you serve. Who was most important to Eve? God or Eve? Eve. Satan said to her, you can be like God. And she liked that idea. And who was most important to Adam, who was standing there watching his wife get lied to by the serpent, and he was not deceived, and then he watches her, the lights go out, so to speak, as she ate, and then she, she hands him the fruit, and he realizes he's got a choice to make. I can die with her or live alone without her. And he chose to die with her. So who was more important to Adam, God or Eve? Eve. So they broke the first commandment. What's the second commandment? What, no carbon what? No, no carved images. No, no, let's just say, can we say no idols? Yeah, okay. What's an idol? Well, an idol is basically an incorrect representation of God. Whenever, when, when Satan said, you won't die, Eve, God is scared that you'll become like him, knowing good and evil. What Satan was saying is, hey, God is ripping you off, Eve. God can't be trusted to take care of you, Eve. God lied to you, Eve. That was a false representation of the true and living God. Not made in stone or wood or paper, but in the mind and the heart, which is worse. And Eve believed that and responded to it, and that's idolatry. Adam didn't contradict it. He wasn't deceived. He let it stand. And when he saw that he had lost Eve, he did not trust God to redeem her, so he died with her. Eve was his goddess, his idol. There are a lot of men whose wives are their idol. And a lot of men that are mad at their wives because their idol is not performing as he wants her to. They broke the second commandment. The third commandment is what? Don't take the, y'all gave up. You're just letting him answer now. Shame on you. Don't take the name of the Lord your God in vain, or don't misuse the name of the Lord your God. Nor are we to misuse those things through which God makes his name, that is his character, known and exalted. That includes his word. So to add to God's word, for instance, is a violation of the third commandment. And Eve added to the word of God. We're not to eat of the tree. We're not to even touch it. God didn't say don't touch it. Adam probably did, but God didn't. So to listen to and believe Satan's blasphemous assertions about God is also a violation of the third commandment. To blame God for what happened as Adam did, right? You remember, you remember God comes to him and says, you know, Adam, what? he's like, this woman that you gave me, this is your fault, God, this is on you, I'm just an innocent victim. That's uh, misusing the name of the Lord. It's abusing his character. It's a violation of the third commandment. What's the fourth commandment? Y'all are looking at Exodus 20 now, aren't you? Remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. We must remember that the earthly Sabbath is not simply a day of rest unto itself. It's also a picture and a pointer to something. 
And that something is, is spoken about in Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 9. It talks about this when it says, There remains then a Sabbath rest for the people of God. And what the author of the Hebrews is talking about is this rest from sin and from striving and from evil and all the futility of life in this fallen world. That's an eternal rest. It's an eternal Sabbath in heaven. But where did all the sin and the striving come from? Adam and Eve and the eating from the tree. There was no sin and striving before that. The creation was busy and active, but it was also at rest, at a sinless, deathless rest. And Adam and Eve destroyed that sinless rest. They broke the fourth commandment. What's the fifth commandment? Honor your father and your mother. God was their father. Did they disobey their father? Yes. The sixth commandment. You shall not kill, or murder is actually a better translation of the Hebrew word. Um, Adam and Eve murdered their own bodies and souls as well as the bodies and souls of all of their offspring. I mean, you know, what Hitler did was nothing compared to what Adam and Eve did. The seventh commandment, you shall not commit adultery. God speaks of his people both in the Old Testament and the New Testament as his bride. And the Old Testament in particular is full of imagery of Israel going after other gods, and, and God calls that very often spiritual adultery and speaks about it prophetically in the language of adultery. Probably the, the, the starkest example of this is the prophet Hosea. And God says to the prophet Hosea, you get to be my living metaphor for my relationship with Israel. I want you to go marry a prostitute, and she's not going to give up her night job after you marry her. And you're going to bring her home and you're going to love her and she's going to keep doing awful things and cheating on you. And you're to bring her home again and love her and she's going to do awful things and cheat on you. Because I want your life to be a parable of my life with Israel. I'm sure Hosea was like, thanks God, that's going to be a great marriage. You, know, you look in the book of Jeremiah and chapter 3 and uh, verses 6 and 7. Listen to what God says through the prophet Jeremiah. Therefore, showers have been withheld, and the spring rain has not come, and yet you have the forehead of a whore, and you refuse to be ashamed. Have you not just now called me my father, and are you not now the friend of my youth? He will be angry forever. He will be indignant to the end. You're a whore. That's what God said of his people, Israel. Adam and Eve ran off with the devil, and they committed spiritual adultery. What's the eighth commandment? You shall not steal. Did Adam and Eve take something that didn't belong to them? Yes, they took the fruit. What's the ninth commandment? False witness, no lying. In making the covenant of works... Adam promised to do certain things and not to do certain things. And then he didn't do what he promised to do, and he did do what he promised not to do. That's a lie. That's the breaking of a vow. Not only that, he was responsible for Eve's well-being as her covenant head, and he let Satan in, and he watched Satan lie to Eve, and he knew it was a lie. To let a lie stand when you know the truth and have an obligation to defend the truth 
is also a violation of the ninth commandment. Last one, tenth commandment. You shall not covet. To covet is to intensely desire that which is not yours. And Eve coveted the benefits of the fruit. God puts us in a station in life. He promises his care and provision. And he tells us to be content with what he's done and what he's given. Adam and Eve had the best life available to them that had ever been offered. And yet they were not content. They were dissatisfied with what God had given. They desired that which he had not given. Therefore, they broke the Tenth Commandment. To do what they did, the fall is not some simple thing. It's actually an enormously complex event. I hope you're beginning to see that. To do what they did broke the whole law. Now, James says in James chapter 2, just to break one commandment is to be guilty of breaking the whole law because it's like a seamless garment. So just one violation was plenty, but they managed to break all ten. They shattered the covenant of works. Now Christ comes as the second Adam to institute the covenant of grace. He's the last Adam. He's the federal head, not of all humanity, but of God's elect. And he keeps the covenant of works, and he merits a salvation which he does not need. And so he imparts it to us. And then he dies a sacrificial, atoning death on the cross as our substitute and rises again. And so in an exact mirror opposite of Adam, through this same mechanism of federal headship, Christ saves his people, his elect. Adam's disobedience imparted death to all of his seed. Christ's obedience imparts life to his seed. That's the substance of the covenant of grace. It's that Christ's active and passive obedience wrought merits, covenant merits, which Christ does not need for himself since he's perfect. And he's able to take those merits and credit them to our account so that God could declare us righteous the moment we believe savingly on the Lord Jesus Christ and are justified. That's the, the outline of our salvation as, ex, as it's explained to us in the New Testament and particularly in the writings of Paul, most systematically in the book of Romans. Now, I want to finish our time together this morning briefly by looking at the relationship between love and the moral law of God. In our culture today, we have a definition of love, and it's not a biblical definition. We have redefined love to mean something along these lines. To love someone is to want them to be happy. And each person has a right to decide what will and what won't make them happy. Therefore, to express disagreement about or disapproval of someone's choices which they believe will make them happy is unloving in the extreme. Right? I mean, the logic coheres. If you buy the, the sort of the foundational presuppositions, that, that view makes sense. To love them then is to encourage and support and affirm them in their journey towards what they think will make them happy. That's love. And so if you don't do that, then you're full of what? Hate. You're a hater. 
Now, if that's your definition of love, any application of the moral law which disagrees with and seeks to dissuade someone from a course of action that they are pursuing in an attempt to be happy is simply unloving. It's hateful. And so any connection between the moral law of God and love seems tenuous at best, an oxymoron at worst. But if we understand that that's not the right definition of love, that what love is is a sincere desire for another person's well-being as that well-being is defined by the maker, the guy who, who put the owner's manual in the glove box of your life and said, if you're going to take care of yourself, this is how to make yourself last. Love is a desire for another person's well-being as God defines that well-being and a willingness to do whatever's in your power to help bring about that well-being. Now, there may not be much you can do to help bring about someone's well-being or there may be a great deal that you can do. And if that's our definition of love, then we can see that love and the moral law of God are very closely related. And that's what Paul says in Romans chapter 13, which my Bible perversely will not open to. Romans 13, verses 8 through 10. Paul says this, Owe no one anything except to love each other. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. So I love you, for instance, by avoiding thoughts and inward states of being, which if given an opportunity, if given free reign, could lead me even to murder you. So I won't just avoid murdering you if I love you. I will even avoid anger. I love you by honoring and obeying you when you're in a position of authority over me. And by setting a good example for you and watching over you tenderly and protecting you when I am in a position of authority over you. I love you by keeping sexual thought and desire and activity in an appropriate and God-ordained channel, namely my spouse. I love you by not lying to you, but rather by speaking the truth in love. I love you by keeping the promises that I make to you. I love you by not taking from you what you did not freely give to me with full knowledge, and so I protect your property. I protect your reputation. To love you is to not steal your good name or your stuff. I love you by returning the 50 bucks I borrow from you or your chainsaw, or your pencil, or that book. And by the way, some of you have a lot of my books. I love you by not envying you and desiring what you have. 
Instead, I'm happy that you have what you have, even if it's better than what I have. Even if I'm tempted to say, boy, it sure would be handy to have what she has. I love you by loaning you my worldly goods when you need them and I can spare them. I also love you when I try and restrain you with a word or with a lack of cooperation or even in some very special circumstances with a threat of force when you are about to do something that is profoundly destructive and unloving to yourself or another person. That's how a cop who exercises deadly force to protect someone or a soldier in a lawful and just war who has no other way to restrain an enemy who's bent on evil than to kill him, has not violated the law and is not guilty of a lack of love. The same could be said to a judge who hands down a sentence on a criminal, or a homeowner who defends their home from a break-in. Now, I've said this before, and I'll say it again. If anyone breaks into my house, I'm going to put a 40 caliber hole in them. And that's loving my wife and loving my children. And it's even doing the best I can to love that person who I put the 40 caliber hole in. Because he's bent on doing something more evil than just walking into my house in the middle of the night. And if I can restrain him and keep him from doing that, I have done him a favor. And if I have to use force to do that, to love both him and my wife and my children, then that's what I have to do. Now, I will try, if he lives, to share Christ with him. I will forgive him for his offenses against me and against my family if he's sorry. And the state of Ohio has a different role to fulfill in this case that has nothing to do with love and hate, just with justice. So I will turn him over to the state and say, the state, you do with him what you need to do with him. As for me, I'm going to do my best to love him and forgive him and try and win him to Christ. Loving you means that my conduct is congruent with the law of God. And I use whatever influence I have to show you that your conduct should also be congruent with the moral law of God. Though I recognize that ultimately you have to choose and you are responsible to God for whatever you choose, you are responsible for yourself. Loving God means keeping the moral law both towards God and towards my neighbor, since to sin against my neighbor is also to disobey God because God said, don't sin against your neighbor. Jesus says, if you love me, you will keep my what? Commandments, that's right. Now, let me ask you. Everybody's like, well, Jesus didn't give the Ten Commandments. God did. Really? I mean, you have people say things like that. Was Jesus present as the pre-incarnate second person of the Trinity on Mount Sinai giving the law of God? Yes, he absolutely was. And so if I love God, I will obey him. I will worship and serve him alone. I will worship him only in a manner in which he is commanded. I will cherish his name and everything that points to him and reveals what he's like. And I'll set aside the one day in seven which he's commanded as a time to devote myself to him. In addition to that, I will treat people the way he has told me to treat people. And that's why Martin Luther could say and could sum up the Christian life like this. Love God and do as you please. 
I mean, that's deeply profound. Just love God and then do whatever you want. Because if you truly love God, you will also end up loving your neighbor as yourself. You will end up keeping all of the Ten Commandments, not just the the letter, but the Spirit, and in all their implications. And you will have a life that is congruent with God's righteousness. So the real question is, who do you love? That's the, that's the question behind all the questions. Who do you love? Who do you love the most? If the answer, honestly, in the depths of your heart is not the Lord Jesus Christ, then you need to be honest about that. You need to, you need to say, you know what, Lord, I thought I loved you, kind of, but I realized that I love myself more than anybody else. Or I love this person who I keep expecting to fulfill some need inside of me that's aching and they're not fulfilling it and I'm angry at them because they're not able to fulfill it actually. Who, who do you love? Is there an over-fondness for your children? Are you willing to break the moral law of God to help your children advance or your grandchildren? There's many parents that do things like that. Who do you love the most? If the answer is not Jesus, go to him. Confess to him that this is so. And say, Lord, the only way I ever love you is if you first pour your love into me. The love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Spirit whom he has given us. Give me, God, your love. And when I am full of your love, then I will be able to truly love you back. But until then, I'm a wreck. I'm a mess. I'm not going to get anything right. And what I do get right, I won't get right for long. Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. Amen and amen.